Oh, and by the way, the dust in the wind thing, that was real. That happened on our trip. That was, that was how windy it got. We couldn't actually go outside and work on a couple of days because of the wind. It's like 50 miles an hour. Well, we begin a new sermon series today, and it's going to take us into the middle of March. We, we aren't starting our series on Revelation yet. That'll come after Easter. But we felt that the Lord wanted to, us to address something else first. So let me just introduce it. Yeah, you see the name of the series there. Let me introduce the, the series by reading a text. It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The reality that that scripture speaks to is that every day of our lives, there is pressure to conform to what the world, to what our culture around us wants us to think and believe and do. Um, that pressure comes through our peers. It, it comes through our workplace, through social influencers, through movies and music, through education. Everyone has an idea about what's right and what's wrong and how you should live. But Paul says, don't give in to that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, there is someone that we should listen to about what's right and what's wrong and how we should live, someone who has real authority, someone you can trust. And that person is, is God, our Creator, who has revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus that God's many mercies come to us, which Paul was talking about in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. Based on the mercies of God, don't be conformed to this world. So that's, that's behind the name of our series. It's about renewing our mind in God's truth so that we can be transformed and not conformed. We want to discern what is the will of God in a number of different things. We want to know what is the good. That, that he says, this is the way, walk in it. So the sermon series is called Discerning the Good, subtitled Gospel Transformation and Cultural Pressures. We're going to engage with the cultural messages and ideas and habits that are putting pressure on believers in Jesus to conform. And we're going to show what God's will is in those areas because as Sam said to Frodo in Lord of the Rings, there is some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. Here are the cultural pressures that we're going to address. Cancel culture, expressive individualism, which is also known as you do you, the cultural ideas about gender identity, gender norms or responsibilities, homosexuality, the influences of politics on the church, the interaction between science and Christian faith. Lord willing, that's what we're going to be doing. 
And if those topics get your attention, if you feel a strong sense of anticipation or maybe dread that that's what we're going to be talking about, then it's because you know that that's what's in the air. You know that's where the pressure is. And you'd like to maybe just ignore it and hope it goes away, but it's not going to go away ever. And so we have to be equipped with what is the good. And God tells us what the good is. And that's really where our focus is. Not on just how bad the bad is, but how good the good is, that it's so good that you wouldn't be tempted to conform to what the world says. That's where we're going. That's why we're doing this series. Now, throughout the series, we're going to appeal to the Bible as the authority that tells us what is good and how we should live. So before we can do all that, before we can go to all these topics, we need to answer the question, is the Bible the right source to decide all these things, decide what is good in any one of these topics? And that's what today's message is about. It's to establish a conviction or to reaffirm the conviction, if you have it already, that the Bible actually is the Word of God and the authority for our lives in everything. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to it in Matthew 4, 1 through 4. That's going to be our starting text. Matthew 4, 1 through 4. This comes from the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness right before he begins his public ministry, which will lead eventually to the cross and to his resurrection. So this is right on the front end of his three years approximately of public ministry. Let's read Matthew 4, 1 through 4, and then we'll pray. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. We just ask, Lord, that your word would come forth today. Though I'm your messenger, I'm not the author, and we pray that your author's intent and the truth of it will come forth even as we talk about this passage and other ones. Feed us this morning with your word, which is our life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This is a passage that shows Jesus treating the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, as the authority on how he should live. There was no New Testament written yet, so we'll talk about that later. But he, he had written words. He had the Old Testament, and he appealed to those words as if they were the authority over his life. <clears throat> Let's think about the passage briefly. The setting is that Jesus has been in the wilderness by himself for 40 days, he has eaten no food during that time, and he is hungry. And he's out there because the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. This was God's purpose, that he should be out there being tempted by the devil who challenges him in the text we read to, to satisfy his hunger by turning stones into bread. 
You're the son of God. Why don't you do it? You're hungry. You can do it. Do it. Now, what was the testing all about? Well, the parallel passage, the one that Jesus actually quotes from, is Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3. And there, Moses recounts how God led the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them, whether they would keep His commandments or not. And that's a test that they failed time and again. Now Jesus comes along, and He's tested in the wilderness for 40 days. So symbolically, one day for every year of Israel's wandering. And in His test in the wilderness, He passes. He never disobeys a command of God. We see that in the temptations of the devil in the passage, and there's verses that follow. Three temptations, all of which Jesus resists, and always with the statement, it is written. He always appeals to the Old Testament to resist the devil. What's the point in this? Two things. One, it shows that Jesus is the faithful Son of God who succeeds where His people fail. By always, He's the righteous one. He, he's, the, he's the one who can forgive us our sins, who can exchange His righteousness for our sin, who can, who can be the perfect sacrifice that atones for all the bad we've done and will do. He can be that because He passed the test. He's, he's somebody who can actually save us. That's the first point, but here's the second one. By always quoting the Old Testament to resist temptation, Jesus treats the Bible as the final authority on what is good and how to live. He treats it like it's the very words of God. It is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I won't turn these stones into bread because God has said something that applies to this situation. Life is more important than just satisfying physical needs. It is also, and it is more importantly, about aligning yourself with everything God says. It is obeying the word of God even when it prolongs your suffering, when it goes against what you crave, and even what seems necessary to your well-being. So Jesus will not satisfy his hunger because this test isn't over yet. He treated the Bible as the words of God, as the authority. I, I cannot do this because that is not what God has said. <clears throat> he calls us to do the same. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man, mankind, you and I, are not to go through life guided only by providing for our earthly needs and wants. We're to be guided by, we are to live by God's word just as Jesus did. So for the remainder of our time, I hope to make the case that Living by every word that comes from the mouth of God is what God's call is on our lives. It is His word. It is our life. So let's start with I have four points. Here's the first one. God is the right authority to tell us how to live. Think about the options we have to decide what's right or wrong. 
Uh, you can start with your own sense of what's right and wrong. You know, what seems right to me, what's right in my own eyes. That's one option. But have you ever been wrong about anything? <laughs> I have. We all have, if we're honest. And if we've been wrong about something, then we're not a reliable source of what is right or wrong. Our judgment is clouded. We have weaknesses. We have limitations. We can't be the ultimate authority. So what else could we look for? Well, how about the collective agreement of our culture, the majority opinion about what's good or bad? Will that, will that tell us what, what it is, what's good and what's right? Well, that can't work either. Because if we go that route, then does that mean that American slavery before the Civil War was good? Because that was accepted at the time by at least half the country. Or should we say the Jewish Holocaust was justifiable? Because again, in that culture, they, they accepted it. The prevailing culture of those times wasn't, ac wasn't accurate, it wasn't sufficient. Same-sex marriage is not good in the United States and bad in Africa, where they have different, we have different ideas about that, but that's what the culture says. In one place it's good, in one place it's bad. It's not reliable. And not even the collective sense is reliable. If we are individually flawed, then we are also flawed together. So we can't rely on that either, the prevailing morals of society. We can't look to that to decide what's right and wrong. No, we need somebody who is not in the same mess that we are. We need someone who's not flawed, who doesn't have our limitations on wisdom and understanding. We need someone who's all-knowing, who's never wrong. We need someone who's fundamentally good so that he can accurately tell us what is good and what is not good and call us to live in the good. In other words, we need the God who created us. The God who is described in the Bible this way in Psalm 1830, this God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. That's who we need to decide what's right and wrong. Now, I'm quoting the Bible to say that about God, so we also need to talk about whether the Bible is a reliable source, and we will, but right now I'm just pointing out that if such a God exists, if there's a God like that, whose way is perfect, and His Word always proves true, then that's someone that we can go to. That is very helpful. Uh, I, I always know where the answer is. <laughs> When I'm confused or when there's this new thing that I have to deal with, I know where to go. There's this person who's perfect. His word is true. And that's very helpful in all the decisions we have to make in life. Like, is it right to get high on marijuana? You can buy it next to the grocery store. Is it right not to report all the income on my tax, my tax return? Is it right to get an abortion? and 10,000 other questions. There's a person who has answers to all of that. His way is perfect. His word always proves true. It's our God, this God. But how do we know? How do we know what he says? How do we know that we have 
God's words. That's the second point. The Bible is the written word of God. Going back to Jesus being tempted by the devil, we saw that he treated the Bible as the word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. He kept going back to what's written in the Old Testament. And he used that to confront the devil. The written words of Deuteronomy is what he quoted. And that and other scriptures, they, they had the weight of authority to him. He treated it as the word of God himself. He was actually practicing it right in that moment. You shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, he was living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In that case, Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3. He was practicing it. Now, at that time, only the Old Testament had been written. That was what they had in the first century in print. But since Jesus' death and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit and the inspiration of more Scripture through the apostles and others, we have the New Testament. That is also what is written. That is also God's Word. Here's one example where it says that. When Peter wrote his second letter, he said this, he was writing to the church in 2 Peter 3.16, he said, there are some things in them, he was speaking of Paul's writings, there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul's letters are scripture like the other scriptures, like Deuteronomy. They have that same weight of authority as being God's words. That's important to remember when we get to the discussions about gender because there are not a few people who discount Paul's writings because he seems to say mean things about women, which he doesn't, but some people think so. And they kind of dismiss Paul. Well, his writings are Scripture. They are God's very words. We'll come back to that another day. So Jesus read the Bible. He treated the Bible as the Word of God. How do we know, though, that it is? Are there any other confirming arguments that it's the God, that's God's very Word? Well, whole books have been written about that. And I have one of them to show you just as a reference. This is Why I Trust the Bible by William Mounts. Scratched out, why should I trust the Bible? <laughs> this guy is a... His Greek text is the one I went through in pastor's college. He's a Greek scholar. Anyway, accessible, easy to read, goes through a lot of the arguments about why you can trust the Bible. Won't go into all of it, but let me give you three reasons why you can trust that the Bible is the very Word of God. First of all, it's because the Bible says that it is the Word of God. <laughs> it says that it is. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. All the writings from Genesis to Revelation, that's the Word of God. It's breathed out by Him. He's the source. Also, in hundreds of places, you're going to read the phrase, thus says the Lord, and then that's followed by a warning or a blessing or whatever, and that's taken as the Lord said this. These are His very words. Your Bible is full of that. Now, you could say, well, that's circular reasoning. Um, that doesn't prove anything that the Bible says that it's the Word of God because I don't even know if the Bible is true. And if I wrote something and said, hey, what I wrote to you is absolutely true 
and it applies to everybody, because I say it does, then you'd rightly say he has a demon and is insane, <laughs> like they said to Jesus. <laughs> Why? Because you can appeal to a higher authority than me to refute that. All you have to do is look at evidence. You've been wrong a bunch of times. <laughs> so you can't be the ultimate authority. But what if there's no higher authority than the Bible to appeal to? What if the Bible really is the only reliable and perfect writing in the world that settles every claim as true or false? Then the Bible must appeal to itself. It has to say that it's God's Word if it really is. Because if it appeals to some other source for authenticity, then that's not conclusive. But there's other arguments. The second reason to trust the Bible as God's Word is because no challenge against its accuracy and authenticity is convincing. No challenge against it is convincing. Now, to be sure, there are plenty of people who are not convinced that it is the Word of God. Lots of objections are raised, lots of arguments. But none of them are convincing if we use plain logic and fair-minded, unbiased, humble analysis of all the evidence. If you've ever read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, he was this journalist, an atheist, secular guy, and he was set out to disprove the Bible. And so he started doing all this investigation, and he came out saying, it's true. Now, for example, why do some people have doubts? Some people would say, well, how can we know we have a reliable record of what was written centuries ago because of all the mistakes that can creep in because all we have is copies of copies of copies? Even if God did say something 2,000 years ago, how could we possibly have a reliable manuscript of what he said? Well, consider this as just one piece of evidence of how God is able to keep it from being corrupted. Before 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, the earliest complete copy of the Old Testament that we had was dated 1008 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which include copies of every Old Testament book except Nehemiah and Esther, were over a thousand years older than that. So now they've got manuscripts a thousand years older than the ones that they had, and so you've got a really good opportunity to see, have there been any changes in a thousand years? Surely, by now, it's, it's a game of telephone, right? Where you start one thing and it goes around and it comes completely back. By now, the whole thing is corrupt, right? Remarkably, it's virtually the same. Dead Sea Scrolls and what they had from 1000 A.D. There are some minor variations, but no significant doctrine is impacted, and they're not substantial. God is able to preserve His Word, and He has. Other arguments. The agreement between archaeology and biblical references. The Bible is full of historical references. Names of rulers, civilizations, cities, references to events like the death of Herod Agrippa, descriptions of things like sailing vessels, temples, occupations, customs, all of which can be fact-checked by modern archaeology and historical records. And in no case do we have a convincing evidence that any of these details in the Bible are wrong. There are things people are hard, say are hard to believe. Parting the Dead Sea, come on. 
fairy tale, right? Well, being hard to believe is not the same thing as proving it to be wrong. There are lots of confirmations about the details of the Bible from outside the Bible. For example, today you can go to the, the amphitheater in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, you can see the very place where this riot broke out at Paul's preaching, where they went down and they were shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can go to the place where it happened. The death of Herod Agrippa is, is also recorded in Josephus, a first century historian, not a Christian. There are lots of confirmations outside the Bible, but here's the most compelling one for the believer in Jesus, that this Bible is really reliable, it's the gut-level affirmation in your soul that it is the Word of God. That's subjective, but day by day, that's what's going to carry the day. It's not blind faith, to be sure, but there is a faith element, and the believer knows this is the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If the Spirit of God dwells in us, which He does, if you're a believer, then the word that He had written is going to resonate in your soul as truth. And I had that very experience a couple years into my, my Christianity. I was saved in 80, 1980 and 1982. I went to a summer discipleship program with the Navigators and it was like a you know six week or yeah it was a six week kind of a intensive Bible training right but part of the deal was we had to go get a job and pay for our time there so I was walking the streets every day trying to find a job four weeks went by I got no job even McDonald's wouldn't hire me I mean figure that I was like what in this world is going on and I started to begin to wonder have I joined a cult because we were staying in a frat house you know over the summer when it was empty and. It was, I started to think, this is, maybe this is all just wrong. Maybe this is not real. And so I, I was out walking around trying to find a job. I just sat down on a park bench, and I opened my Bible to something easy. I, I opened up the Proverbs just to look at it and say, is this really anything? And as I was reading Proverbs, I just thought, this makes so much sense. This is an accurate description of the world and how things work. This is a good description of cause and effect, things that lead to trouble, things that lead to thriving. And it's realistic. It doesn't say everything is going to be great, but it's hopeful at the same time. There, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, it says. There is a Lord. There is a God. He has, no, he has knowledge for me. There's a way forward. And so... Proverbs, me reading Proverbs on a park bench, revived my conviction. This is real. There is a God who wrote this, and we can live by it. And that conviction has only strengthened in the last 40 years since then. More and more than ever, as I've seen 40 years play out now, and I see, yeah, it actually does play out the way it says that it's going to. Everything does. That's the inner conviction that you need to have about this Bible that you have. Here's the next point. The Word of God deserves our full attention and submission. There's an important word in the Scripture that Jesus quoted. It's the word every. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That means not a single word of Scripture is irrelevant. Every word is from the mouth of God. Every word deserves our full attention and is authoritative for our lives. It is breathed out by God. He didn't make an accident when he wrote eight chapters of genealogies in 1 Chronicles. That's there for a reason. The verse that Jesus quoted was from Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a word of the Lord to Israel right before they entered the promised land after 40 years of wandering. And here's what we read near the end of all those words in Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, and they may be careful to do all the words of this law. You keep hearing that word, all, all, be careful. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. If you want to thrive in this place that I'm giving you, you need to pay attention to this word, is what he's saying. This is, not, this is more than just going and finding milk and honey in the land of promise and having which your, your needs met. No, you have to live by my word. You have to pay attention to my will for you. And that is how you will endure. That's how you will inherit this place and not be vomited out of it. And Jesus is quoting this because he says, yes, it's still valid. <laughs> These principles that are here, it makes a difference for me not saying to Satan, sure, I'll make stones into bread. Jesus was being careful to do all the words, even the words of Deuteronomy in that case. There are principles there that apply. The Bible, God's written word, is no empty word for us. It is our very life down to the last word. We ignore it or alter it to our own harm. And here's our pastoral burden for you. If there's any conviction we want you to have, it's to take your Bible seriously that you give it your full attention and submission because it is your very life. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at God's word? Tremble because it is actually your very life. It is life and death, whether you believe what's in here. Do you approach it as if your life actually depends on knowing and believing what God says? Or, or does it sit unopened on your shelf? Or, or do you read it with the mentality that, well, I stand over it, I judge it, I decide for myself whether I agree with it or not, or which parts I like and which parts I don't. I have a real concern for those who are deconstructing. That's a word used for people who bought into the Christian faith. Maybe they were raised in it from a child, and they began to reevaluate 
what they really believe, if they, really, if they believe it anymore. And often they're growing in distrust of the evangelical church as a whole. Now, for some people, deconstruction means that they're just reevaluating what they've been taught, trying to see if their traditions and beliefs have actually come from the scriptures, going back to the Bible to find out what's really true. And if that's what they're doing, then that's a good thing. Everyone should make sure that their faith is their own and not just something they've adopted from their church culture. But I've known several people personally over the years who have deconstructed, and it doesn't mean that for them. The common thing I've heard is some form of the phrase, I'm reading the Bible with a new lens. I'm thinking about it differently. And in the cases I'm thinking of, that doesn't mean I used to be casual about the Bible, but now I tremble at God's Word. Or I used to think that it was good advice for life, but now I, now I think it's my very life. It doesn't mean now I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What it typically means is I don't really believe everything it says anymore. I'm just not comfortable with the things that, that are in it that seem wrong to me, like that there's a wrath, that there's God's wrath on us, on all of us, unless we find shelter in Jesus Christ. That just seems too harsh to me. I don't like the, the descriptions of, of warfare, God, God's people taking over the land, wiping out men, women, and children. It, that can't be right. The, the flood can't be right. There's all these things that just I just don't think that's right. I don't like the exclusivity that Jesus is the only way to salvation. I don't like the restrictions on what we're allowed to do or not do. And if you actually believe this stuff, everything that's written in here, well, that's hateful. That's going to get you into trouble. I know people, many, quite a few, who have begun to think this way. And it always seems to end up as more conformed to the world and less and less like the picture of the follower of Jesus in the Scriptures. More in agreement with the non-Christian than the Christian. A new kind of faith that fits right into our culture and before which you would never be persecuted. And some have left the faith completely. It all starts with changing how you look at the Bible. If you won't live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, then you can dismiss parts of it and interpret it to your own, like, your own liking, and then there is no doctrine of Christianity that you won't lose someday as long as there's pressure on you to do so. But it doesn't have to be that way. So let's end on a better note. Let's end with the hope that it holds out to us. The last point is, we will live by the Word of God. We will live. We can't miss the effect that God's Word is intended to have on our lives. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We shall live. God wants us to really live. Body and soul, He wants us to thrive. And the only way we'll do it is if we align ourselves with the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Some see the Bible as just a list of rules, do's and don'ts, many which seem designed to limit our enjoyment, to keep us from enjoying life. But the opposite is actually true. God's Word is intended for our thriving both in this life and for life beyond the grave. When it tells you to not do something, it's like a stoplight at a busy intersection. It prevents you from being T-boned by another car. The restricted freedom is for your own good. And when God's Word tells you to do something, it's like a coach's instruction on how to be the best player you can be. And in the moment, you might think, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, coach. This isn't going to prepare me. But later you'll find out, yeah, that was exactly the right thing. That was good. Thank you for saying that. The Word of God is intended to give us life. Even Deuteronomy, full of rules and warnings. The book that we might skip over in our Bible reading plan because it's just too dull. Jesus quoted from it, and it made a difference in his temptation. There is no empty word in the Bible. It is your very life. Now, these guys going into the promised land, of course, they were going to encounter tragedies. They were going to have things happen beyond their control, like famines. People would get injured. People would get sick. The, the Bible, following God's word, doesn't prevent those things from happening. You could still die an early death. But is there a right path that leads to life day by day? Yes. God's word shows it to us. It's in taking to heart all the words of God. Let me give examples of how the Word gives us life. For one thing, it could actually save your physical life, as it did with Noah. Noah had just God's Word. There's going to be a flood. It's out there a ways. It's decades away, but there's going to be one, and it's going to destroy all life. So build this boat. Not a boat. Build a big shipping container so that it floats. And he did. And Hebrews 11 says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He actually saved his life, the life of his whole family, because he listened to God's word. Proverbs is like that for us. It's full of counsel about how to avoid troubles, how not to get into a big mess. It says in Proverbs 7, for example, let insight keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Why? For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. That's a warning against fulfilling sexual desire in a way that is outside the bonds of male-female marriage and that covenant. Because you think it's going to satisfy you, think it's going to be amazing, the movies say that it is, and then when you actually do it, it will kill you in some way. It will take away your life. It won't satisfy. You'll have regret. And Proverbs is saying, don't do that. God is saying, stay in the lane that I've chosen for you. That's where life is. Even if in the moment you crave something, well, it's not what you need. Believe me, that's what God is saying. Word gives life in other ways. It comforts us when we are in discouragement and despair. 
Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. So I'm afflicted. It hurts. I hate this. I don't want to live this way. I need help. I need some reason to keep going. Well, what, what's that going to be? Your promise. There's a promise out there that will give me life. A promise like Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Yes, it hurts, but glory is coming. And this gives me life today. And we could point to a lot of other ways the Scripture gives us understanding, wisdom, comfort, courage, etc., But here's the big one. It leads to eternal life. Because the Bible is a story about, it's a true story about humanity falling into sin and into its consequences and of a Savior who came to rescue us from all of that. One who was born, he was crucified, and he rose again. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. His name is Jesus. He succeeded where we failed, and he exchanges his perfect record for our failures, bearing our guilt and our punishment on the cross, that we could be reconciled to God and raised in new bodies like his and welcomed into blessed eternity. He said in John 8, 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If you believe the word of the gospel... The word about Jesus dying on the cross in your place and for your sin. You will never see death. You will live eternally in a renewed kingdom without all the bad stuff. It is our very life. So let me close with this. God wants us to live. He is good. He is not a joy killer. He wants us to have the real thing. But we have it when we pay attention to, when we submit to His Word. It's good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. His will is. And we find out what His will is in this thing called the Bible. So please, read it. Don't let it sit there. Read it personally, devotionally. With humility, Lord, show me your glory. Moses said that once. Let me see. (laughs) Or Psalm 119, 18, let me behold wonderful things out of your law. (laughs) We do it that way, and we do it frequently, daily, as much as possible, because we're getting bombarded by everybody else's message and our own thoughts continually. Give God's word a place daily. And do it in community so that we're not always just in our own head, getting our own ideas out of it, but we're on that same journey with a bunch of other people who are also reading their Bibles and talking to each other about what they're reading. And that's a path that leads towards understanding and growth and and peace and comfort and all kinds of things that the Bible is supposed to give us. This is how we really live. Even when obeying God's Word like Jesus did, prolongs your suffering or goes against your desires or will get you in trouble. Just like Jesus. 
Even so, the word of the Lord proves true. His way is perfect. That's the conviction we're going to proceed with in this series. And that's the conviction that will guide us and give us discernment of the good in all of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. We have your word. We have your direction. We have your understanding. This, this written word that reveals your character and your promises in the way of salvation. And we pray that we can enjoy all that you intend for us to have, to really live the life that's described in it, one that is full of comfort and hope and strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Let that be our manner together as we're leaning in and seeking you. Show us your goodwill. Help us discern the good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stay.